In Genesis chapter 15, God addresses two fears plaguing Abram. First, God dispels this fear that the promises that God had made to both Abram and Sarai wouldn't come to fruition. This promise that they would have a son. God also addresses a second fear. Abram feared on one aspect that God would fail him, which was silly. God would never fail him. But he also feared that he would fail God. Yes, God would give a land to inherit, but Abram wonders, will I inherit it? Will I do something to discredit myself? As we noted last Sunday, while God would never, ever, ever fail Abram, (laughs) the irony is that Abram would absolutely fail God. Over and over and over again, he would fail. And yet this is what's amazing. It's that Abram's failures mattered not because God's promises were never predicated upon his performance. Would God fail? No way. Would Abram fail? Absolutely. But it's because God's promises would never fail that Abram was good to go. I know it's radical, but the reason God's grace will never fail you is that you will always fail God. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. That said, while it is important you understand that God's grace is the only thing that can save you, God's grace is the only thing that can sustain you in the place of your failures. You should remember this, though. A failure to obey God's commands will still yield very natural consequences in and through your life. God's grace, it saves, it sustains his plan in spite of your failure. But grace doesn't insulate you from the very real consequences of poor decisions. This morning, we're going to see that instead of trusting and waiting for God to accomplish his work of providing a son to Abram and Sarah, a son his way and in his timing, this couple make a tragic mistake when they attempt to accomplish God's work apart from God's direct involvement. And yet, though God's grace will still remain sufficient, his promises remain sure in spite of their failures, we will see, though, that the consequences of this poor choice will be severe, and it will be far-reaching. The effects we're still feeling today. Genesis 16, we're there because we finished chapter 15 last week, beginning with verse 1. We read, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no, no children, and she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. And Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband Abram to be his wife after Abram had dwelt in the land uh, of Canaan ten years. Now, the context here is simple. For starters, Sarah and Abram are old. They're old people. In Genesis 12, verse 4, we're told that when they leave Haran, Abram is 75 years old, 
And Sarai is 65. Now, we're not told specifically there that she's 65, but in chapter 17, uh, we'll be told that Sarai is 10 years Abram's junior. Now we're informed, right, in 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 our passage, that they've dwelt in the land of Canaan. How long? 10 years, meaning Abram is 85 and Sarai is 75. Aside from this fact, that this places Sarai at the tail end of her childbearing years. Now, you might think 75 is way beyond childbearing years. Well, we are told in chapter 23 that she dies at the ripe old age of 127, which means at this point in human history, following the flood, because women lived longer, it's only logical that their childbearing years were probably extended more than they are today. Regardless, though, Imagine for a moment that Abram and Sarai have been sitting on a promise that they were going to have a son, a promise God gave them. They had been sitting on this promise for 10 long years. Can you imagine that? Like even with God's assurances that his promise was still intact, like what we saw in the previous chapter, 10 years That's a long, long time to wait. Especially when if you're Sarai, you're thinking time might be quickly running out. I mean, how many more years could she realistically expect to get pregnant? Aside from that, you need to understand that barrenness, of which Sarah was, barrenness came with a very nasty stigma. In ancient times, because they lacked the medical understanding to to understand why women had a difficult time conceiving, many people saw the inability for a woman to be fruitful as evidence that God was somehow punishing that woman. I mean, it's only logical. It was the only logical way that they could explain why some women had no problems getting pregnant, but other women struggled. They didn't have the medical understanding, so the conclusion is... One woman was blessed by God and the other cursed. Since this was her plight, you need to realize that Sarai faced all types of ridicule. Some verbal, some not verbal. People talked about Sarai behind her back. They gossiped about what sin she had committed to draw the ire of the gods. For all points and purposes, Sarai was seen in that culture as a failure. Not just a failure as a wife but a failure as a woman. Culturally speaking, this fundamental inability for a child, for for a woman to provide her husband a child, that would have been legal grounds for divorce. Now, before we look at the particulars of our text, which is very easy just in the reading that we had to step back and think that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. You need to realize just for a minute, consider the raw, desperate human emotion that would have led Sarai to to have suggested what she did to her husband, this proposal. Imagine, for approximately 50 years, while they were living in Ur, before God appeared to Abram, Sarai and old Abe, they did, you can figure, everything they possibly could to get pregnant. They desired to have a child. After things prove a little difficult, I can imagine Sarai begins to track her cycles. She monitors her ovulation. She tries different sex positions, home remedies, 
She probably took ancient medicine. She wants to get pregnant. She's desperate, but to no avail. More than likely, with each passing year, Abram and Sarai, they, they probably reach, they resign themselves to the reality that, that they're probably never going to have a baby. I mean, after 50 years, come on. I can imagine at some point they come to peace with their situation. But then something crazy happens, something amazing, something that throws a wrinkle into the plan. Abram, while in Ur, has a life-altering encounter with the God of the universe, who not only promises him he's going to have a son with Sarai, but that this son would grow to be a mighty nation in which God would bless the world. Now, that's radical, right? For 50 years, they've been trying to no avail to have a baby. God appears, gives a promise, and Abe's like, we're back on. Here we go. And yet what happens wasn't what they would have expected. For 10 years, while they're in the land, every time that she and Abe knock boots, what do they expect? They're expecting she's pregnant. I mean, God had made a promise, right? Why not believe that that time was finally the time that God would come through, that God would give a, ki- a child? How brutal must it have been for Sarai to have to crush Abe's spirit a month later when it became clear she hadn't conceived? Like, like we, we remove ourselves from what Sarah had gone through. For 50 years, they try to have a kid. That doesn't work. God gives a promise. Abe's reinvigorated. They get together. Abe's excited. Why? God gave a promise. Why not now? And then a month later, she gets the news first, logically. And she has to go and she has to let him know. Like, if that wasn't savage enough, that cycle of sex, excitement, anticipation, disappointment, it happens for 10 years. Years. Ten years. Is there any surprise that Genesis 15 opens with Abram worrying that God's promise that he and Sarai would have a son might never come to fruition, that it might never manifest? I'm sure aside from Abe, Sarai, she shared the same angst. But this is amazing. Because in light of the last ten years of frustration, as we saw in the previous chapter, there's this night Imagine it. Old Abe crawls into bed, snuggles up to Sarai, and tells her that God has just taken him outside, has had him looked up to the stars of the sky, and has reiterated again this promise he was fearing. Right? Like Abe in that moment, 50 years we've come to peace with it. A promise, 10 years of frustration, doubt, worry. God appears again. What's going on? It's business time, right? It's business time. It's time. This will be the night. Why not? God's just renewed his promise. They're going to have a son. So Abe and Sarai shake up the sheets, engage in a bit of hanky-panky. They do the deed. Abe walks around for the next month on cloud nine, convinced Sarai is pregnant. I wonder how awful. How awful a moment that must have been when Sarai realizes that once again, she isn't pregnant. And not only that, she's going to have to go in and let Abe know. 
she's going to have to burst his bubble. <laughs> Aside from the, 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 the emotions, those disappointing feelings she must have been dealing with, that idea of now having to again break the news to a husband who's been struggling to hold fast to God's promises. You know, you read through the passage and you're like, that's the dumbest idea ever. But when you get into the emotion of it, when Sarai goes to Abe again to say she's not pregnant, like this, this alternate plan, I get it. Like, like I, I had no doubt that at this point, Sarai blames herself. Like, look at our text again. What does she tell Abram? She says, the Lord has restrained, not you, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. It's as though Sarai, she's like, Abe, it ain't you. It's me. It's clear I'm the one now standing in the way of God's promises. I can't give you the son that you deserve. Why don't we take Hagar? Why not let her be a surrogate? You sleep with her if she conceives the child or children, they'll be mine. Now, that, that idea of a surrogate, that wasn't a crazy concept. It was a legal practice. Culturally, it was normal. It was accepted. In actuality, today, this notion of a surrogate is gaining more and more and more popularity. Verse 4, look at it. So Abram went into Hagar. That's the biblical way of saying they had sex. And she conceived. And when Sarai saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. <laughs> Is anyone shocked that the idea of having your husband have sex with another woman, especially probably a, a young Egyptian babe, to have a baby, that that plan backfires? Like, are we shocked? That, that Hagar became despised in Sarah's eyes? You see, while the obvious is the obvious, what strikes me is how very quick Sarai turns on her own plan. Does that not strike you as kind of a little interesting? Like Abram making whoopee with Hagar only to immediately conceive. For Sarai, that should have been mission accomplished, right? I mean, that's exactly the result she wanted. That's what she desired to have happen. And yet, it yields the opposite result. Instead of the happiness that she and Abram were going to have a child, out of Sarah's heart flows an indignation. Hagar became despised in her eyes. Now, why such a visceral reaction? I'm convinced that Sarah reacted this way because it confirmed what she long feared. As mentioned, Sarai believes the reason she's barren was why? The Lord had restrained her. Like it was what motivated the whole plan. And yet, I think it would only be human that there had to have always existed just a sliver of doubt in her mind that maybe, just maybe, she wasn't the problem. That the reason they couldn't have kids was maybe Abe's fault not hers? I mean, what if the sheriff was not up to the task? What if Abe's little red rider was shooting blanks? What if his soldiers were simply too weak to march? 
Well, you didn't think you'd hear any of that from a pulpit. I, I feel you. <laughs> but imagine, like she's got this doubt. Abe have sex with Hagar. She gets pregnant. Whatever doubt existed, that just maybe it wasn't her. That doubt is gone. Right? She was barren. No questions. Now here's the irony to her statement. Look at the statement again. The Lord has restrained me from bearing children. You know what the irony of that, that statement? She was 100% right. Like she was barren. And her barrenness could be directly attributed to a divine intervention. The Lord was restraining her. And yet, here was the problem and why she ends up making such a ghastly decision. Sarai failed to consider why the Lord had restrained her. Like, like understand, because it was important to God's plan that this son of promise be born through a miraculous work of God and not be the byproduct of the natural flesh. The Lord had, was, and would restrain her ability to have children until the time came for God to intervene and act. <laughs> that restraining from this point forward, you should, you should keep in mind, it will continue for another 10 years to the point that it became so absolutely impossible for Sarai to conceive naturally that when she did have a son, everyone knew that son was a product of a supernatural work of God. We're told that Sarai would be 90 years old when she would get pregnant. The Lord was restraining her. You know, it's important to realize the problem with Sarai's outlook, what ultimately led to the terrible plan, it really boiled down to the fact that she failed to recognize the Lord had a purpose for her barrenness. She was barren. The Lord was doing it. But the Lord had a point. You know, contrary to the notion that God was judging her, the truth was that this affliction was essential to accomplishing the larger plans God had for her life. You see, Sarai made the unfortunate mistake because she doubted God's goodness, failed to trust that her situation was part of a much larger divine plan. Her barrenness, which was difficult. Such a burden to bear as a woman. Her barrenness was not the judgment of God. Her barrenness was instead the mechanism for a greater blessing God had in store for her. The Lord was restraining because he had better things on the horizon. And yet, because she failed to trust that God had a plan, what happens? She takes matters into her own hands. Well, if God won't give me a child when I want it, then I'm going to set a plan in motion to accomplish that work. I'll do it my way. <laughs> do you notice that what happens here? It's sad. What happens wasn't happiness. What results from her decision not to trust God instead was a torment greater than her initial barrenness. The Lord is restraining me. So I want a kid. That's the solution. That'll make me happy. She steps outside of God's plan 
what results was worse than the barrenness. Keep in mind, what made the entire approach so egregious is that Abram and Sarai were seeking to accomplish a work of God on their own, without God's involvement. And you know, this is exactly what legalism seeks to do. Laws, rules, traditions, and the like, they create a mechanism for what? They create a mechanism by which Christians seek to accomplish a work that only God can supernaturally yield. Instead of trusting God's work to happen as the Spirit moves and leads, sadly, we end up wanting a shortcut. We create our own rules to try to expedite the process. You see, Hagar was Abram and Sarai's workaround, their best attempt to get what God had promised. And yet, what happens? We'll see that God rejects the son. What's produced when they seek to do it their own way apart from God's involvement is that God rejects it entirely. Like, never forget, your life, when you give your life to Jesus, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, in that moment, a work of God starts. It begins. And while legalism seeks to provide a way of your inclusion, rules to obey as a shortcut to godliness, as illustrated by this story, that approach only produces a counterfeit an imitation, one that God refuses to accept. Understand this. Walking in grace is a mindset that utterly rejects my inclusion in God's work. Whereas legalism is born out of a restlessness that God's work isn't happening fast enough. Grace, what does grace do? Is grace restless? No, the contrary. Grace rests and the knowledge that his authentic work will be accomplished in my life in his way and in his timing. My job is to trust, to wait, and to walk. This is why in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 through 11, we're told that there remains a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered Jesus' rest has himself ceased from his work as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. Abram and Sarai were restless. That restlessness led to a terrible decision that yielded horrible consequences. Friend, God has a plan. He has a purpose. He has a work he wants to accomplish. Let him do it. Get out of the way. Don't include yourself and rest. Rest. Well, we're told, verse 5, Then Sarai said to Abram, My wrong be upon you. Uh-oh. I gave my maid into your embrace. And when she saw that she conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between you and me. So Abram said to Sarai, Indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. And when Sarai dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. Like, is it really a surprise to anyone that when her plan eventually blows up in her face, what does Sarai do? Does she take responsibility? Nope. She immediately shifts blame. 
She blames Abram for going along with her plan, then to justify her attitude towards Hagar. What does she say? Well, since, since that maid conceived, I've been despised in her own eyes. No, she hadn't. Hagar hadn't been throwing shade Sarah's direction. She, this was all in her mind. No, she didn't say anything. It was a look. Abram, she's just looking at me funny. What? A look? Abram. Yeah, we need to take a second. Oh, Abram. Like, in what universe do you honestly think sleeping with another woman, even if your wife gives you permission, is going to somehow work out in your favor? Like, what planet do you have to live on to think, that's a terrible idea? And who is this, mind you? The father of the faith. There's hope for you, right? This is Abram, this mighty man of God, this pillar, this rock. His wife comes, says, hey, you want to sleep with my handmaiden? Yep. Like, no questions asked. Okay. Like, in what alternate reality does sex outside your marriage relationship ever help solve marriage difficulties? You know, we've just been going through a real tough spot in our marriage, so I just thought sleeping with someone else would solve all of our problems. When Sarai proposed this to Abram, dude should have been a man. Should have manned up. Should have said, no way. I know that's what you want, but that's really not what you want. Trust me. <laughs> like he should have in that moment, right? As a man, a godly man. He should have reminded his wife that God had a promise. That God was worthy of their trust. He should have been loving. Sarai, you're not the problem. God's in control. He's going to give us a son in the right timing, the right way. Abram should have said, Sarai, we need to be patient. Oh, no. What does he do instead? Abram decides to get naked and start the revolution. That was an Orange County reference for any of you that didn't know, whatever. It's terrible, right? The, the, you can't justify it. But you know, it gets worse than that. Like now that Sarai's on the warpath, blaming him, blaming Hagar for this situation, how does Abram deal with the fallout? Does he man up to deal with it? No. He should have calmed his wife down. He should have owned the situation, should have been a voice of reason, should have been solutions-oriented. But what does he do? He capitulates. He says, she's your handmaiden. You do what you want. Sadly, we read that Sarai dealt harshly with Hagar. This word, dealt harshly, it indicates that, that she was more than just vindictive. She was more than just angry, more than upset. The, the idea, the word, it, it means to be busied with or to be occupied with. The idea is that Sarai was not only upset and angry, but now she had made it her business to make Hagar's life miserable. She was occupied. Her whole, she saw red. Her whole goal was to make that young woman life hell. 
Can you blame Hagar for running? I can't. But verse 7 we read, Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for a multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you're with child. You'll bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has heard your affliction. He will be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all of his brother. This word wild man, in the Hebrew, it's wild ass, actually. It's, it's the idea of, of a, an undomesticated donkey living in the wilderness. He's tough, he's strong, he'll survive, but he ain't getting along with anyone. Like he's going to kick the closest person that comes to him. And this is this man Ishmael. This is what he'll be. Now, before we get to anything else, we also need to discuss, though, first, the identity of this mysterious angel of the Lord. The word translated here, angel, literally means messenger or representative. The phrase signified this individual was one sent to represent the Lord. That's what the, the word means, angel of the Lord, that phrase, one sent to represent the Lord. But notice here, the definite article, the, position before angel. That's important because what it tells us is that this particular representative was unique to all other representatives. Like we don't have an angel. We have the angel, not a messenger, but the messenger. Furthermore, the conversation that takes place between the angel of the Lord and Hagar it kind of deepens the mystery, doesn't it? Notice, the angel of the Lord said to Hagar, what? I will. And then lays out these things that he's going to do. Then he later justifies that intervention by saying, look at it, the Lord has heard your affliction. <laughs> what we have here is the angel of the Lord speaking to Hagar as the Lord, not necessarily for the Lord realize what we have here is not just a physical, represent, a physical representative coming from the Lord, but instead a physical representation of the Lord. As we discussed in chapter 14 with Melchizedek, the angel of the Lord here is another fancy word, Christophany. It's a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, didn't come into existence when he became a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes laid in a manger. He existed before then. He's part of God. So he exists before, and we find in instances in the Old Testament, Jesus, the second person, the physical appearance of God, intercedes in human affairs. We find it happening here again. Notice the capitalization of angel. You see that in, in your Bible? I'm not making this stuff up the capital A, what that means is that the translators noted that there was a divinity behind this particular representative. That's why they capitalized it. 
And this leads me to a larger point. Hagar. Hagar's a nobody. Like, I'm not trying to be mean. But in the big story arc, she's no one special. She's not important. She has no role in the story of redemption. I mean, the, the reason she's in the text at all is that Abram slept with her and she had a baby. That's the only reason she's included. Truth, the only reason she's in the tents of Abram is because that idiot made a terrible decision to leave the land of promise during a, pharaoh, a, a famine and go down to Egypt. Makes a fool of himself, comes back with a bunch of stuff that also is terrible. Of the things he comes back with is Hagar. She shouldn't have been in the tent to begin with. And yet she is. Keep in mind also, Hagar, she's on the run. Admittedly, she's correct in fearing for her life, the life of her own unborn child. But keep in mind that Hagar here is the quintessential victim. Like She did nothing wrong. She submits to her mistress, Sarai. Sarai says, this is what we want you to do. No doubt she loves Sarai. She loved Abram. She's not trying to move in on Abram. She's been asked to carry their child to term. She's a surrogate. This is legal. It's accepted. It's normal. She jumps into the mix of it. But this blows up for her. She's now unjustly targeted. She's unfairly treated. She's abused. She's being hurt. She's betrayed. She's abandoned. And what's worse, the people doing this to her claim to walk with God. Anyone ever been hurt by someone claiming to walk with God? Hagar. She escapes. She runs. She finds herself at a spring of water in the wilderness on the way to Shur. This way of Shur, the reason that's significant is that uh, this was probably an ancient trade route that connected Egypt and Canaan. Where is Hagar going? She's going back to Egypt. She's going back home. While Hagar's life has been flipped upside down, and it's not her fault, it's important we also point out our text has no record of her crying out to God. You see that? There's no record of her crying out. The Lord opens in a very simple way. Hagar is not seeking divine revelation. She's not pleading for divine intervention. All we're told is what? The angel of the Lord found her. <laughs> and not only did the angel of the Lord find her, but it's very clear right from the beginning that the Lord knew everything going on. Knew her name, Hagar. Then knew where she came from, right? Sarah's handmaid, which means that the angel of the Lord knows why she's running, knows what's going on. I like the two questions that's asked. First, the angel of the Lord asked, the Lord asks, where have you come from? The Lord knew the answer to that, but right from the beginning, what's happening here is that the Lord wants Hagar to retrace her journey. Yeah, no doubt. Things had grown complicated and the tents of Abram and Sarah. But the Lord's asking, do you really want to go back to Egypt? Do you really want to go back to being a handmaiden of Pharaoh? The Lord's asking her, is that really the life that you're wanting to return back to? But then he says, you know, where are you going? In the original Hebrew, 
it's this this question's more loaded than what it's translated into English. There is the the sense of will in the, the the center of it. Basically, the Lord is asking Hagar, not necessarily where she's going, but rather where she wants to go. Where do you think you're going to end up, Hagar? Where have you come from? But where does this end? You're running. What's the conclusion? What's the destiny? What does the future hold? What's the direction of your life? The Lord wants her to consider her past journey, but also her future destiny. And then what does the Lord do? He gives her this simple command. Return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Though a conflict had arisen between she and Sarai, the best place for her and her son was where? The land of promise and the tents of Abram. Running back to Egypt, and this is the point the Lord wants to hammer down, would not solve her problems. It would compound them. Like instead of running, God invites her to do something bold. Trust him with her circumstances by returning and submitting to Sarah. And what's amazing, she does. We're told, verse 13, that she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. No, the name of the Lord who spoke. You are the God who sees. For she said, here I also have seen him who sees me. Therefore the well was called Berleroi. Observe, it's between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, meaning she goes back, right? Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael, which means Ishmael recounts the whole story to Abram. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar born Ishmael to Abram. Now, once again, it's obvious Hagar sees the angel as no angel. Like in reflecting on this exchange, she says, I have also here seen him who sees me. Like what she's saying here is I've seen God and I'm still alive. No one can see God, but I have. And I wasn't struck down dead. After the angel of the Lord departs, we're told that she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. And I love this. If you, if you want to highlight, underline, circle, bookmark, ear flap, the pe- like make note, this name for God from Hagar. You are the God who sees. Like that name has this bizarre Hebrew construct. Like it's literally translated Not just, he's the God who sees me. Like in the sense that God's aware of what's going on. But it means that God, more than just seeing, attends, cares. The name is more than God being aware. It means that he actively cared for her and her time of need. That that the angel of the Lord did something to her soul, to her heart. She also names this well on the way to Shur. Apparently didn't have a name then. But she names it Ber Leharoi. Or literally, this is the well of him that lives and sees me and cares for me. I love that. This woman on the run encounters the very well that poor Sarai needed to drink from. This well where you realize that God is aware and he cares that the Lord was restraining out of love that he had a plan. Chapter 16. 
as you examine it, no doubt. Abram, total failure. Nothing about this tells us he did anything right. He did everything wrong. Everything you could do wrong, Abraham does it. Still is the friend of God, the father of our faith. Why? Because of him or in spite of him? Oh, you see God's grace. The fact that God didn't send a lightning bolt and strike that man right there. He goes into the tent with Hagar, and there's like just this tornado. I'm starting over. But he doesn't. God's grace, right, remains sufficient. We also can note from chapter 16 that there is no doubt that this decision, this failure to trust God, it would carry with it severe and in many ways unintended consequences. Ishmael, little side note, the Muslims believe he's the son of promise. It's why we almost have this global conflict perpetuated forever. This strife between Isaac and Ishmael goes on today, all because of this stupid decision, this failure to trust God. But beyond all of that, what do we learn about God's grace? (laughs) As mentioned, Abram and Sarai, they teach us that God's grace still proves sufficient even when we're a failure. Even when you fail God, take heart. His grace will never fail you. And yet, I want to take the last few minutes we have to point out another aspect of grace. Demonstrated in this passage, I find particularly interesting. Well, there is no doubt God's grace made, e- made evident in and through his exchange with Hagar. Consider for a minute how that grace demonstrated to Hagar manifested itself. God here used a horrible situation in order to reveal himself to Hagar in the most profound ways. And you should know that's a first in Scripture. Up until this point in our travels through Genesis, we've seen God's grace demonstrated largely independent of the individuals involved. But yet in this instance, something new happens. God's grace manifests manifests directly because of the difficult circumstance Hagar found herself presently facing. The only reason grace found Hagar is why Abram and Sarai screwed Hagar and she had to run. That's amazing to me. Even though Hagar wasn't seeking By God's grace, he finds her and he acts in response to her deepest need. Like in closing, friend, I don't don't know what your week looked like. Even if you stumbled into church this morning and you're a victim, you're hurt and you're lost and you don't even know where you're going. You're here this morning with no expectation of hearing from God, (laughs) mainly the God of the universe. I want you to know, and this is His grace, regardless of what brought you here, you need to know, the Lord has not only heard your affliction, but it's on account of these very difficult afflictions that Jesus has left his throne in heaven 
in order to find you and to reveal himself to you in the most relevant of ways to minister to your heart as he did Hagar's in grace. Friend, know that Jesus is more than the God who's aware, the God who sees. Jesus is the God who cares about you even when no one else in this world does. Because that was Hagar. This morning, as you consider what might be next for you, Jesus is asking the same two questions he asked Hagar. Where have you come from? Where was your journey? What got you to today? And then he's going to ask, where do you want to go? Do you want to go back there? Where's your life going? Where does all of this stuff, you're in, where does it end? What's your destiny? Because Jesus has a plan. He has a plan for you. Will you follow him? Will you trust him? Will you trust your circumstances to him? I think, Hagar, we're going to see her in heaven. Because the Lord gave her an option. You want Egypt? You've been there and done that. You, where are you going? I don't, you don't know. Will you trust me with your life? Even, when I, even if I ask you to do something terrible and difficult to go back. Hagar made this decision. God's grace was demonstrated. It blows my mind. Understand. And we'll close with this. It is the very fact that God can use your darkest moments and your most daunting situations to reveal himself to you in the most personal of ways. That he can take things that this world meant to destroy you and he can reveal himself to you. It was because of what Abram and Sarai did to Hagar that she was able to meet God. And God revealed to her a name that was unique in all of Scripture. Oh, that was the God who sees me. And that was the God who cares for me. And that is the God that I'm going to follow. It is this very fact, friend, that God uses these things <laughs> to demonstrate His grace. That is what makes that grace so amazing. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was what? Lost. Was I looking? But now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Because Jesus cares. Amen. So Father, Lord, we let...